just a reminder, here at That's So Chronic, we are dedicated to sharing personal stories. We are not advocating any type of treatment, therapy, procedure or intervention. Everyone is unique, so please seek professional medical advice before making any decisions for yourself or for others. Welcome to That's So Chronic, the podcast where I, Jess Bryan, interview some incredible people from around the world that are thriving and sometimes only just surviving with chronic illnesses, life-changing injuries and potentially disastrous diagnoses. Today I had the absolute pleasure of chatting to Amber Tresca from the About IBD podcast to talk about all things ulcerative colitis. In this episode, Amber talks us through her diagnosis, the effect not having insurance had on her level of care, the decision to go through with J-Pouch surgery, why she does the work that she does, and some excellent advice for anyone out there who has just been diagnosed with a chronic illness. I love I love Amber's energy and the spark that she brings to her story, and I know that you will too. Welcome to That's So Chronic. And we're in business, Amber. Welcome to That's So Chronic. You are a podcast host yourself. You are the host and creator of About IBD. You are also a writer and an editor. You blog over on aboutibd.com. And you are also one of the co-founders of ibdmums.org, which is a resource supporting parents that may have children that have IBD or mums that have IBD themselves. So needless to say, the work that you are doing is absolutely incredible. So thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. That was such a beautiful, succinct introduction (laughs) that I think I'm going to steal it because usually when I introduce myself, it's like much, (laughs) much longer than that. So I appreciate that. Thanks. (laughs) No worries. Now, what we're here to talk about today is that you were diagnosed with ulcerative colitis back when you were 16 years old. I guess to start, if we go all the way back to the beginning, is diagnosis even the start for you? Were you experiencing symptoms before that? Perhaps even a misdiagnosis? Take us back to the beginning. When did this all start for you? Yeah. So first of all, thank you for the all the way back comment. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so I did have a misdiagnosis uh, to start with. Now, The thing of it is, is that people with IBD, it usually does take a very long time to get a diagnosis. So within that framework, my diagnosis was pretty speedy, um, to tell you the truth, because what happened was, is that the symptoms came on in a flash. So we're talking just constant diarrhea, blood in the stool, mucus in the stool, pain, losing weight hand over fist, although I was already uh, on the on the thinner side to begin with. I was 16 yeah. years old. So, but at that point you're losing like muscle mass, you know, so you really yeah. start to look rather, um, rather bad. So uh, fatigue. So all of that was going on. I get to see, uh, the first thing that happened is I went to the emergency room mm-hmm. and that's where I was in fact misdiagnosed. I see. And on the, on the one hand, you're like, okay, well, that, you know, wasn't a gastroenterologist. Okay. Well, what are they, you know, how does that all work? Should they have gotten it right? I don't know. Yeah. But 
to knowing what I know now, 30 years later, you see a teenager with bloody diarrhea. Eh, it's probably colitis, you yeah. know? So anyway, so I get misdiagnosed by this dude in an emergency room. Few months later, I want to say, because it took that long to get in to see a gastroenterologist because I was referred by my follow-up, which was my pediatrician, and then over yeah. to the gastroenterologist. So that all takes time yeah. to get that bounced yeah. around. And by the way, pediatric gastroenterologist, I mean, that that never entered the equation. I'm assuming that was a thing that people were in 1989, but didn't see one. Yeah. Saw an adult gastroenterologist. So I was wandering around for a little while, getting worse and worse and worse. Finally got in to see the gastroenterologist who first thing that he did appropriately was a colonoscopy. But by then I was really, really sick. Yeah. And so I went to the hospital for that colonoscopy and I did not leave for 40 days. Oh, wow. So yeah. And that's, you know, partially because I was so sick and partially because in those days they only had a couple different treatments. Yeah. And not only did they take a long time to work, but they worked slowly. Mm -hmm. And then I have allergies, which complicated everything. So it was just a whole, it took us a while to get that all figured out. And then to get the diarrhea to stop and then to get the blood to stop so that I could finally go home and then spend several months recuperating at home as well to, until I was well enough to go back to school. Wow. Yeah. So that's in a nutshell is the diagnosis story. Yeah. So what was the treatment plan for you? Was it like, here's some medication, we'll, we'll touch base or what was the system? Yeah. So in the hospital, they first have you NPO. So nothing by mouth. Mm -hmm. So that was two weeks. So eating nothing wow. for two weeks. I was actually watched while I brushed my teeth. So I didn't swallow any water. Um, I don't think they do that anymore. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so during that time, they would give me like, you know, uh, lipids, you know, intravenous nutrition. Mm -hmm. And I think that that has also come a long way since then. But that was what was there. And essentially, we were just waiting to get the blood to stop. So the first thing that they gave me was, of course, prednisone. Okay. And that, I mean, that was the thing that was for the inflammation. Mm -hmm. They're giving you all sorts of other things. You know, they're giving you stuff to make you feel less nauseous. They're giving you pain medication. They're giving you potassium. They're just giving you fluids, you know, all of that. My IV pole was like ridiculous all the time. Yeah. So it was a lot of prednisone in the hospital. And then they finally started me on sulfasalazine, okay. which was basically the main treatment that was available in those days. Yeah. And that was the thing that finally, I think, put it over the edge. And then after that, it was, and then I was on both of those for a long time until they could get me off the prednisone, but that took a really long time, okay. you know, to wean off of that because I was on such high doses. And then after that, it was mostly the sulfazalazine and then supportive care and just getting me back to where, because I was in high school. Yeah. So it was literally getting me back to that, like, I could go to school all day yeah. and not be tired and then also not have to go to the bathroom over and over yeah. again. Yeah. Because you are 16, you're still at high school when all of this is happening. Were you able to like talk about it with your friends? I mean, not so much because like how do you how do you bring that up? Yeah. You know, I don't even know. <laughs> like I I don't I don't I don't even think I was fully really aware of what was happening yeah. to me at the time, you know? I mean, 
certain things are explained to you, but I, like, I remember like, you know, my doctor coming in one day and sitting on my hospital bed and which I don't like, by the way, yeah. <laughs> um, and coming and sitting on the end of my bed. And he was like, your face is starting to look a little rounder. And I'm like, well, the hell does that look? Like, what are you because of the prednisone yeah. and the prednisone causes that swelling in your face. Like, no, but I was never told, oh, yeah. this is what's going to happen, you know? So it was wild, but I was out of school for a really long time. Yeah. You know, like people noticed. Yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, and I mean, friends came and visited me. I had teachers that came and visited me and uh, people didn't really ask a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. So I'm also not really sure what everybody knew when, but my closest friends, I was able to explain at least to a certain, a certain amount, I guess. Yeah. And then after that, I, I did write a couple of papers. So <laughs> imagine that I, me wrote a couple of papers on I'll shift gladys. Um, so uh for instance, I feel like for some classes I wrote about it. Um okay. I think I interviewed some of my physicians. And then I think I also wrote uh the essay to get into college. I think I also wrote that on ulcerative colitis. And then I had a teacher whose husband had Crohn's disease. Okay. So obviously at some point I you know, I had a conversation with her, although yeah. I don't remember exactly when. And she was kind of like, oh, okay. She was kind of in the club too, given what her husband was going through. Um, they actually did get divorced at some point. So <laughs> that was sad. But I kind of understand, like, you know, it's a lot to live with, especially in the 80s and, and 90s. But no, this was not a thing. This was not, you know, I certainly didn't lead with it when I yeah. met people, you know, yeah. like not for a long time. So I think a lot of people just didn't know what the heck was going on and, and you know what. And for sure in high school, and I've talked to a few other patients on my show and then also like in confidence about being sick as a child or as a teen and the rumors that fly around and that you only yeah. find out later that yeah. people are assuming that something else is going on. Mm -hmm. And usually it's something that, you know, well, it's not the truth, you know, yeah. and nobody, but nobody also asks you what the truth is. Yeah. So, and, and nobody you know, that's not fun to live where people have a misconception about you. So looking back on it now, like explains a lot of things. It just, it didn't occur to me at the time. I mean, I was just like fighting for my life, yeah. you know, so I wasn't so concerned yeah. about these other people. Yeah. Did the treatment plan work? I mean, so I usually say like, like now we have remission, right? Yeah. What we call remission. And then there's different kinds of remission. And I don't think First of all, those weren't defined then. Yeah. It was kind of like, are you bleeding or are you not bleeding? Yeah. That was kind of like what you know what you had. And there were definitely times when I wasn't bleeding anymore, but I don't think I would ever say that I was in remission. Yeah. It was varying levels of disease. So my disease was classified as severe right from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And there were times when I did better and I felt better and I was not dealing with a lot of symptoms. And then there were times when everything came back and then I'd go back on the prednisone and then have to, you know, work your way off of that. And sometimes you start weeding off the prednisone and then the symptoms start again and you have to bump it back up again. And yeah. so it was definitely like imperfect. 
And especially knowing what we have now and the treatments we have now and knowing people that have achieved real true remission on the newer treatments. Like I look back on what I was experiencing and what I thought was just how my life was going to be like. Yeah. And it's like that, that wasn't okay. Yeah. You know, that was bad. Yeah. If someone's listening to this and they're like, okay, those were her symptoms hang on, what is ulcerative colitis? How would you describe this condition to them? Oh, so ulcerative colitis, which falls under the umbrella term of inflammatory bowel disease, along with Crohn's disease and indeterminate colitis, refers to inflammation in your colon, your large intestine. So it is an immune-mediated condition. So that means that it starts with your immune system. Your immune system is attacking your colon and causing inflammation there, causing small sores, holes, ulcers in your colon. Ulcerative colitis is, they call it ulcerative colitis because it is when the inflammation is located in your colon. Okay. So Crohn's disease can also mean that the small intestine might be affected, although people have different parts of their intestines affected. It's not always, you know, one, one part Crohn's can be anywhere, Mm -hmm. um, in your digestive tract. And then indeterminate colitis is when we're not really sure if it's Crohn's disease or it's ulcerative colitis. And usually those folks get treated like they have ulcerative colitis. So yeah, because usually what happens is with indeterminate colitis is that you have that inflammation in the colon, but it doesn't quite look like ulcerative colitis. So it's, eh, you know, and that's like about 15% of people that get diagnosed with IBD fall into that, into yeah. that bracket. So it's not a small amount of people. Yeah. So that's essentially what, what ulcerative colitis and IBD are in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. But along with the inflammation in your colon, because it's an immune mediated condition, can also attack your joints, your skin, your eyes, just so many other things. And then there's things like fatigue that go along with it. And then there can be pain to varying levels. So it really does affect or can affect your whole body, although we do tend to focus a lot on what it does to your gut. But I always want to make people aware that they might think that, okay, well, now, you know, I've got like an eye condition, like eye inflammation, like uveitis. That's connected. You know, that's part of living with, with IBD. And so there's some skin conditions that go along with it too. So you get this weird skin thing. And you go to a dermatologist, and if they're not familiar with seeing people with IBD, they might not know what it is because it's related to the IBD. So, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think a lot of times people with IBD, they they like want want to like everything that's wrong with them is because of the IBD. Yeah. Um, In some cases, that's true. Yeah. Uh, So, you know, it really is like a whole person disease. So I guess life continues for the next few years. You're on this management plan, and then... I'm assuming ulcerative colitis rears its ugly head again and symptoms really start to affect your quality of life. What happened then? Yeah. So, so I have to take you back to what it's like in the United States (laughs) in the early to mid nineties. Okay. So we have commercial insurance is how a lot of people are insured unless Mm -hmm. they have, you know, Medicaid or something like that um, through the government. But as a young person at that time in my early 20s, I had a gap in my insurance because you usually get it through your employer. Yeah. 
And if you think about it, you know, you leave college, you, you know, your first job, et cetera, doesn't always give you health insurance. Yeah. So that's where I was. And I went for um, an amount of time where I didn't have insurance and I didn't have any care. I was paying for myself as alazine out of pocket at the time and basically seeing a doctor like when I could, yeah. you know, so not as frequently as I should have. Mm -hmm. So I did finally get a job that I got some insurance and it was like, I, I got to go to the guest. I got to go to a gastroenterologist. Yeah. So I find a new gastroenterologist and I go and see him and he says, well, I mean, first thing we got to do is colonoscopy. It's been way too long since you've had one. And I'm like, I know. Yeah. So he does that. Right. And by this time I'd had ulcerative colitis for 10 years. Yeah. And he does that and he, so you're out, right? I'm out. I'm, I'm, you know, under sedation during the colonoscopy. I don't know what's going on, but then he comes into the recovery and the look on his face, like you just don't want to see your doctor looking like no. this. He was scared. Okay. So he was like, I don't know what's going on. It's bad. Like I'm running blood work right now. We need to figure out what's going on. But I'm like, it's your colon has got to come out. Like, okay. It's got to come out. Wow. <laughs> yeah. You're like, well, good thing like, I just got insurance. <laughs> I know, right? So, yeah. So, okay. All right. So now I knew that surgery was a possibility. I always knew that because one sort of good thing that happened in the early days was I did meet with some surgeons in the early days okay. of my disease, which... I think it's a great idea because it does take you time to come around to yeah, that idea. Absolutely. So I knew what the possibilities were. And so then I went and visited, you know, visited, <laughs> visited a couple different colorectal surgeons, you know, listened to what they had to say and ultimately decided on J pouch surgery, which is the removal of the colon yeah. and most of the, I still have a little rectum left. Some people have none left. Okay. And then what they do is they take the last part of your small intestine, which is your terminal ileum, and they make that into a J mm -hmm. with some staples. Mine is stapled. And then that acts like your rectum. So that gets attached back to your anus. And then you can go to the bathroom again out of your bottom. Yeah. So that's the surgery that I ultimate, ultimately had. And like, Waking up in recovery after having my colon out, it sounds really odd. This sounds really odd to say, but it's like you feel better like immediately. Wow. Like immediately. And my surgeon was like, your colon was like falling apart. He's like, like, like if you ever had any like concerns that maybe this wasn't the right decision, he was like, this was the right decision yeah. Yeah. and you absolutely had to have it done and this was a good time to do it. Yeah, probably you know? like the only decision that was available. Oh, yeah. I mean, there uh, still at that time, there were a couple of new drugs, but they, I mean, they weren't, nothing was going to bring me yeah. back from where I was at. Yeah. Going so long without care was not, I mean, I didn't do it by choice, but you know, that, like that was bad. Mm -hmm. So like when that happens, it's just like, you just need, you need constant care. You need somebody watching and you need, um, I mean, and, and I don't know what they would have done for me anyway. There was really wasn't a lot available, but maybe we could have done something. Yeah. So, but yeah, it was just too much inflammation for too long. Yeah. And so I had to have that colectomy. And this J pouch surgery, it does happen in two stages, doesn't it? Right. I had two. Mm -hmm. So it's also done in three. And well, actually, it, 
some people used to do it in one, which seems <gasps> wow. wild to me. I can't imagine having that. Um, I don't think anybody does that anymore. But in in the in the early days, of, yeah. you know, when they were figuring <laughs> this all out, I, I've heard of that happening. But yeah, so the first stage is that you have the colectomy, so your colon is removed, and then you have an ileostomy. So a small part of your small intestine is brought outside of your abdomen and you wear an appliance to catch your stool yeah. over it. And um, and the J-pouch is created during that same surgery as well. Mm-hmm. And then the second surgery is, is that they close up that stoma, they put everything all back inside, and then your J-pouch is all hooked up and then you're off and using your J-pouch. So yeah. that's the way that I had it done. How long did you have your appliance for? Only for three months. Okay. So I had the ileostomy and the stoma for just three months. Like it was like, it was like a blink. It was so okay. fast. Yeah. And what is the recovery like? Yeah, it's, it's a lot. Yeah. Uh, you know I mean? Well, okay. So when I had mine done, they weren't doing laparoscopic. Okay. So it was open surgery. Yeah. So I have a scar. I, I always think about it when I talk to people, cause I'm like, I should really measure it. Like, I don't know how long it is, but it goes like, right. Like almost like right under my breasts all the way down to wow. my lower pelvis. Yeah. So it's a big opening. I think most of the time they do it with laparoscopically now. So it's just a couple of small incisions now. Much better recovery time on that. So Mm -hmm. my recovery time was five days in the hospital. I was out of work for six weeks. Then I went back part-time for a little while. And then (laughs) essentially I went back full-time almost just in time to turn around and go back and have more surgery again three months later. (laughs) They loved that at work. Um, But yeah. And, and not only that, but it's like, I mean, that's just your, that's just like able to get up and be semi-functional. I mean, it's like six months before you start to feel like you did before the surgery and then like a year before you're back to everything else. Because there's that first time when you're like, can I do a sit up? Like, yeah. can I do that? You know, and all of those things. So it's a it's a long re- recovery, really. And did you, I mean, I know that you said that you immediately felt better after the surgery. But yeah, I guess moving forward in the following months, the years after, how did you notice the difference in your quality of life? I mean, it's, it's night and day. Yeah. <laughs> like really night and day when I think about it now. And how I had to live, knowing where the bathrooms were, not going anywhere that didn't have a bathroom, tired all the time. I would come home from work and get into bed and get up the next morning. And, you know, it was just like no, no life at all. Mm. It was just, it was so wild. And one of the things I didn't mention before, but which happens with IBD is fevers. Right. So... I would have these fevers. I'm hot. I'm waking up with night sweats. It takes a lot out of you, yeah. you know? And yeah. so, so after the surgery, I mean, it's not like having a functional colon. It's not anything like that. Yeah. There are still limitations for sure. But I could, act, you know, I could hold it. I could go places. It wasn't bleeding. So yeah. I wasn't anemic anymore. I was able to put on a little bit of weight. I could exercise and put on some muscle. Like it was just, you know, it's just, it's completely different. It's almost like, like not like, I don't know, like not even really having a a life or knowing who I was or what I wanted to do or anything. And then suddenly all these things open up to you and you can be more 
you know, have some of the same opportunities that other people have that didn't, it didn't even occur to you that you could have done before. There's just no way you could have done yeah. it before. Like you just wrote a recent blog post on your website about going traveling and going camping yeah. with your family. And, and I can only imagine yeah. that, you know, if someone had told you 20 years ago or 22 years ago when you had the surgery or before the surgery, hey, you can go camping. You'd probably be like, yeah, nah. <laughs> <laughs> I think about it now. And I remember going camping with my friends once. Uh, I don't know. I was probably 18 or 19. And it was funny. I forget whose car it was. Somebody's, I don't know. Somebody had a, <laughs> somebody had a station. Somebody had like a really ugly station wagon or something. And so that's yeah. what we took, right? So I lived in Michigan at the time. And so we were driving all the way from lower Michigan to upper Michigan to go camping. And so we're talking like eight hours, six, eight hours. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I'll drive. Well, you know why I wanted to drive? Because whenever there was a, a rest stop, I just pulled into the rest stop. You know what I mean? Like that was the only yeah. way to, to, to do that, you know? And so, yeah. yeah, for sure. Like traveling, are you kidding me? It, oh my God, it was a nightmare. It was a nightmare trying to go anywhere, yeah. trying to get on a plane and like be on a plane. And like they, especially when they would tell you, you know, you're, you're taking off or you're landing and they're like, everybody has to sit in their seats and put the seatbelts on and you're just sitting there going, I yeah. hope I can make it, you know? Cause that space is actually really long. <laughs> it is. Like the seatbelt sign on is, is on for a really long time. Forever, ages, a year, a decade. I don't know. <laughs> it's so long, but now it's not this it's not the same. I'm not saying that I don't have to be aware of those things anymore, but it's not like it yeah. was. I mean, I remember getting up in one flight and like like yelling at the, you know, the flight attendant on the way by, you know, I'm just like, I'm really sorry, I really gotta go. I promise I won't hurt myself or anything. <laughs> it's just yeah. like in the bathroom, it's just like, you know, they still want you to fall or anything like that. Right? Yeah. But it's just like, yeah, it's just it's wild and it's just a completely different life now. And yeah, that's not to say that I like I, I remember what it was like, of course. And sometimes I think I still behave sometimes yeah. in that way. I forget that things are different now. And mm -hmm. so you still have some of that leftover anxiety. Of yeah. course, you're always wondering if you're going to get really sick like that again, because mm -hmm. it's not a disease that leaves you. It stays yeah. with you for your whole life. So it's just, it's just, yeah, it's a completely different life, but, it, but it's, but it's also not the same as never having had, you know, the surgery or the disease. Yeah. Before we carry on with the interview, I wanted to quickly jump in and say thank you to you for listening to this episode of That's So Chronic. This podcast would not exist without your support. So if you haven't already, make sure you've pressed follow on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen so you never miss an episode. All right, back to the interview. Are there any sort of extra considerations that you need to do for your management plan nowadays? Like, is there still medication that you need to take or is there any sort of changes to diet that you've had to consider? Yes. <laughs> so I went for a really long time without medication. Okay. And I don't know that that's really the best way to handle it. Mm -hmm. But again, I had my surgery as in 1999. And even though I had just the most amazing compassionate care. There just wasn't that much known yeah. at the time. 
So with what we know now, it's probably good to still keep a relationship with your with your team, with your gastroenterologist. I remember my gastroenterologist shaking my hand and being like, nice knowing you. Yeah. <laughs> but no, that's not really how we should, that's not how we do it now, I guess yeah. is what I should say. Yeah. So now I get, I do get regular scopes okay. still because they want to make sure that nothing is going on. There's yep. no inflammation. There's, I mean, it's very, very small chance, but still it's a bad thing. So you want to avoid it if you can, Yeah. but just checking to make sure that there's no cancer. Yeah. So it's not, it's not something I ever want anyone to worry about, but mm-hmm. it is a reason to go and get a scope every so often. Yeah. Um, I was getting them, I, I mean, I didn't get them for a long time because everybody was like, well, you're good. See you later. Yeah. But then I was getting them every year and now I think we're down to every three years. Okay. So there's still you know, you still have to undertake some management and then things crop up here and there, and then you need to go and get those dealt with. So I, you know, I still see my GI team every six months and along with a host of other physicians, because like I said, this, it affects your whole body. I've got a dermatologist, I've got a neurologist, I've got a urologist and, you know, more besides that. So Mm -hmm. there's a lot, there's a lot going on there. And then diet, yeah, I mean, it's funny talking to other J pouchers because everyone is so different. Yeah. I I can eat a lot of things, honestly. I really can. For a long time, my kids, my kids are 12 and 14 now. They thought that salad was my favorite food. <laughs> <laughs> I had them snowed. Um, but yeah, but that's because I can eat a salad, yeah. right? You yeah. know? So, I mean, maybe not like, you know, two big salads in a day, but I can eat a salad. But, you know, also if you go out to eat somewhere, eh, sometimes that can be tricky, you know, and, and especially because with an invisible illness, especially like going out to eat with like work functions, things like that, people don't really know anything. And they're like, well, why aren't you like for a long time? I didn't drink. That's not the case anymore. But for a long time, I didn't drink. And I like I'd be drinking like water, and I remember being out at a work function, and my boss being like, "Oh my gosh, don't you, you don't even want like a diet coke or anything like that?" And I'm just like, "Like no, like I, yeah. you know, I was just trying to, you know, just do the best that I could for my body because I was so sick for so long." Yeah. Uh, but for sure, I mean, you don't have a colon, so things don't get processed the same way. Yeah. Things sometimes come out looking like they did going in. You know, it can be loud. Yeah. it There can be smells, like all of that going on. Yeah. So after so many years, I deal with all of that and don't really give it a lot of attention mm-hmm. or worry anymore. But I know that's not the case for everyone, yeah. you know. So you definitely do have to pay attention to your diet. You can still have diarrhea. That's like, you know, I mean, but it just makes sense, right? You don't have a colon. So you can still have diarrhea, but that can be painful because there's a lot of bile in it. Yeah. So that's hitting your skin, all that perianal skin and ouch. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Like, ouch. So you want to manage your diet from, from that respect as well. Mm -hmm. I've had, I've had Thai food once in my life. Okay. (laughs) Never again. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So <laughs> you're like, Thailand is off the agenda for any future trips. For sure. Like, I don't even know what, you know, I haven't really 
I mean, I'd love to travel more. I'd love to do more things, but I think about that a lot. Like, what do you, you know, so I have to bring my yeah. own food, like some bread and butter. Like, I don't even know. Cause there's just so much that, and then yeah. how do people who live with IBD who, you know, for instance, live in cultures where spicier food is like, I don't even know how that all yeah. works because I live in a place where it's very easy to just like eat, you know, white rice and pasta if that's yeah. what I need to do and some bananas. Yeah. So yeah, you definitely need to think about that. So it never really, I, I'm not going to say it's like it, do, you know, it dominates your life like, like before, but it's not ever something that you don't think about yeah. anymore. You mentioned that back at the beginning, when you're first diagnosed, you were writing about it for essays to get into college or for school assignments. Fast forward to now, you're still writing about it. You know, you've got your IBD podcast and you've also created IBD Mums, which we'll get to in a second. But I'm curious as to what inspired you to keep being so open about this and to interview other people and share your story. I think it's because I was so sick and I, I, there's so much that I didn't know at the time. Yeah. You know, and, and part of it is just because there's a lot of denial mm-hmm. when you get diagnosed with a chronic illness. I think not for everybody. I don't want to speak for everybody, but for me, there was definitely a lot of denial going on yeah. there. And then I also just thought that, okay, this is what the treatment is. This is how good it's going to get for me. And then this is, this is just what my life is going to be like, Yeah, you know, and it didn't occur to me that I should be asking for more. I should be looking yeah. for more that I deserved more. Yeah. And not only that, but it was dangerous. It was dangerous, like a monkey to be alive, yeah. you know? So I could have just perforated at home and died, you know? Yeah. So like not knowing these things, not being open, not sharing, that was, that led to a worse outcome for me. Yeah. And so I felt a significant responsibility to share my experiences and so that other people can learn from it and yeah. not just patients. Yes. Uh, you know, patients are who I normally aim most of the work that I do at. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I do is take technical information and turn it into something that patients will care about yeah. and will understand. But also for providers because it is important that they understand the patient experience. And I know they're seeing patients all day, talking to their patients all day. But when someone comes on my show, they might tell me something. And I say me, but I mean, you know, it's the world, right? Yeah. It's my show. Um, anybody can listen to it. But it, it's overhearing two patients talk about their lived experience is probably not something that a provider is going to get access to every day. Yeah. So it's important in that respect as well. And then also, and this didn't occur to me in the beginning, but I understand it better now, is also for industry. So we're talking to people that work for pharmaceutical companies, work for marketing companies, you know, all of um, these folks who may not live with an IBD, but they work on products or educational materials or what have you. Yeah. And they can get a better experience, better understanding of what the experience is like for patients. Yeah. So 
putting that all out there, plus for all of the people, I often say, especially when we're doing stuff, for instance, when we're advocating for legislation in the United States to help people that live with chronic illness, I can be there. I can yeah. go to the U.S. Capitol and I can go to the offices of my elected officials. I'm well enough to do that. Yeah. I know lots of people who aren't. Yeah. So yeah. I want to be that voice. So it's evolved over time. I didn't start out with any kind of a plan. I mean, yeah. oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> but it has evolved over time and I've learned what can help the patient community and the provider community mm -hmm. and then also what can bring us together and help us be on the same page because in a lot of cases we really don't understand one another and so yeah. you know hopefully in a small way i'm helping to achieve that understanding which also leads perfectly into the work that you are doing with ibd mums you co-created this with your friend brooke what inspired you to create a resource specifically like this yeah because there there was no help for us <laughs> yeah we were like you know like um when i became pregnant with my first and i was bouncing around between all of my doctors yeah and I, you know i've always had wonderful compassionate care but they weren't perfectly aligned on what should happen yeah. and when it should happen and in what order it should happen and who should be responsible for what, yeah. you know? So, so many things that I didn't know how to manage and I didn't even necessarily know how to ask for. Yeah. And then I didn't even know what was available or what I should be thinking of or, or any of that, you know? Um, so you know, everything went really well. I had both of my children through spontaneous labor and vaginal birth mm -hmm. and everything went well. They are ridiculously healthy <laughs> and drive me up and down the wall <laughs> earlier today. School is out and I'm sitting at my desk editing an episode of my show and I was like, get out, get out. <laughs> you, <laughs> Like, you know, so they're so amazing and healthy. But I was you know, I was a person, luckily I had a high level of knowledge, but like, I, I didn't know what was going on. And I didn't know anybody like me. Yeah. I didn't know anybody yeah. like me. And so when Brooke and I met at an event that was for patients with chronic illness, we realized that we, of course we had so much in common living with IBD, but we also realized that we, gosh, we didn't even, we're so used to not having resources that we weren't even really looking for them. Yeah. Do you know what yeah. I mean? So it was like, we were, we were just like, this is not cool. Like we should have, there should be something yeah. for people like us. We shouldn't have had to figure this all out on our own. We shouldn't have been like sometimes the, the only patient like yes. us, you know, that our doctors have ever seen. Mm -hmm. I remember in one of my doctor's offices, I'm walking out after an appointment and they were literally in the hallway talking about me. And it was so funny. I mean, not really in the hallway. I don't want to make yeah, it sound yeah. like anybody's filing any, any confidentiality laws or anything. It wasn't like that. But they were like, oh, yeah, we talk about you when you're not here. <laughs> you know, because it's just like, you know, I, I'm unusual. Yeah. You know, I'm unusual. And so, again, we have to help patients understand what's available to them. I mean, we still have moms that are being told that they can't 
take their medication when they're pregnant, that they can't breastfeed if they're taking medication, that if they have to have a colonoscopy, they have to dump their milk afterward. I mean, just so many things that patients are being told that we know aren't true Mm -hmm. and that we shouldn't they shouldn't be having to suffer through these things because now we have data. Yeah. It's not getting out to the providers. And so, you know, it's not getting out to the moms. And so we want to help folks understand what's available to them, how they can go through preconception, you know, conception, mm-hmm. pregnancy, birth, fourth trimester, and then living with a chronic illness and also being the parent that you want to be. So these are the things that we're looking to do with IBD moms Mm -hmm. and that, and why we formed the group. And again, we didn't really know what we were doing. We were just, we wanted to create a space and be a resource for, for, for moms with IBD and moms who have kids with IBD. And then of course we discovered that, as recent, it's truly, truly needed, and that there's a huge amount of work to be done. Yeah, and so that's the journey that we're on right now. It's just incredible all of the work that you're doing in this space. If someone's listening to this episode and they've just been diagnosed with an IBD condition, perhaps ulcerative colitis as well, what is something that you would tell them? I would say, always be very honest and frank with your providers. Yeah. Number one, tell them everything. Tell them how bad it is. Tell them that you have to stop on the way to work to go to yeah. the bathroom if that's something that's happening to you. Tell them if you're if you're uh, a, a vulva and vagina owner and you're finding penetrative sex uh, painful, tell them that. Tell them what you're scared of. Are you scared of you know, getting cancer one day? Are you scared of surgery? Are you scared you're not going to be able to be a parent or the parent that you want to be? Are you scared that you won't be able to be in a long-term romantic relationship? Like be honest with them. They can do more for you than prescribing medications, but they can't help you if they don't know what you're dealing with. So that I think if, if I were to distill everything down, that is the thing that I would tell people is just, you're not going to shock them. Yeah, <laughs> It's not going to be anything that they haven't heard before, talked about before, Yeah, but bring it all up, lay it all out, let them know what's happening with you and let them help you to the best of their abilities. And then you know what? If they're not helping you, bounce, find another, yeah. find another one because there are great, great physicians out there. Yeah. And I think I would tell somebody who's just been diagnosed with IBD condition, I would tell them to go and check out aboutibd.com and definitely listen to your podcast. I have had such a great time, which seems like such a strange word to say, but (laughs) such a wonderful time reading your blog and, and on your website. There was one quote that I was just like, oh my goodness, I'm so excited to talk to Amber after I read this quote. And I, it, it's in your diagnosis story. And mm-hmm. you said, before I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis, I can't remember even having a bowel movement. That's how unmemorable my digestive system was. Yep. And I love your sense of humor. I love the energy that you bring to all of your work. So that would definitely be my recommendation if someone's listening. That is so sweet. You don't know how much I needed to hear that today. <laughs> 
Oh. And, you know, and thank you so much for your show. I love your voice. I love what you're doing. I love the, the, the beauty, the, the, the interview style that you have. It's really amazing. I know how difficult this work is and you're, you're doing it with, with such panache and such grace and in, and in such a wonderful way. So <laughs> I really appreciate you doing this work and bringing a really a truly uh, diverse amount of voices in the chronic illness community to your show. So thank you so much for all that, that you are doing. I know it's not easy, <laughs> so I appreciate <laughs> thank it. Thank you so much. I wasn't even fishing, I promise. No. I <laughs> <laughs> oh, amazing. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. It was my pleasure to speak to you. And of course, thank you to you for listening to this episode of That's So Chronic. Make sure you head to the show notes to find links to Amber's podcast about IBD, as well as her blog and social media channels. If you want to reach out, you can find me on Instagram and TikTok at That's So Chronic or behind the monthly newsletter. The best way that you can support the show is by leaving a five-star review or rating on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, as that really helps That's So Chronic reach more ears around the world to hopefully spread awareness and more importantly 